Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I am your host today on this Sunday afternoon, and we hope that you are enjoying uh, your Sunday wherever you are, whether you are in Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Arkansas, Louisiana. Uh, MPB is proud to be your source uh, for all things Mississippi and particularly for us, the arts in Mississippi. My guest today is Julian Rankin. Welcome, Julian. Thank you. Good to be here. Julian hails from Oxford, Mississippi, and we'll talk a little bit more about his his early life. But uh, we want to let you know that he has a brand new book that has just been published uh, entitled Catfish Dream. Its uh, subtitle is Ed Scott's Fight for His Family Farm and Racial Justice in the Mississippi Delta. And I believe it was published or by the University of Georgia Press. Is that, that right? That's correct. Part of the Southern Foodways Alliance series. They have a, a series called Studies in Culture, People, and Place that they publish with the University of Georgia Press. So it was a collaborative effort. Now, did that have anything to do with the uh, the writer's colony that, that you participated in with the Southern Foodways Alliance? It is related. You know, a couple of years ago, I started this whole process of writing this book in 2013 when I met the Scott family, um, was introduced to Ed Scott, and began thinking about, you know, what, what this might look like in book form. And then the Southern Foodways Alliance um, was generous enough to award me their first Rivendell Writers uh, Fellowship at the Writers Colony uh, Rivendell in Sewanee, Tennessee. So that happened shortly after that. And the executive director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, John T. Edge, had written a seminal piece on Mr. Scott back in 2001. So he was familiar with the story. It's, mm. it's kind of wrapped up in the Southern Foodways Alliance's history um, so it just made a natural fit. We didn't plan from the get-go for this to be the case, but as the book took form and came to life, it, it just seemed like a natural fit to make it part of this series. So uh, the story centers around the life and family and struggles of Ed Scott Jr., who was born in 1922 uh, and passed in 2015, right? That's right. He was the son of a sharecropper. You know, there's a junior, so there has to be a senior. Mm -hmm. Ed Scott Sr., his father, brought the family from Alabama to Mississippi in 1919. So Ed Scott comes on the scene as a, a Delta youngster in 1922, and we follow his whole life, um, some epic journeys. But the kind of high point, the apotheosis of, of this all, the crescendo, was when he became the first non-white owner and operator of a catfish plant in the nation. And that happened in LaFleur County, Mississippi. And it happened because of discrimination, institutionalized discrimination from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So he uh, was a part of the civil rights movement in the 60s and, and had his own battle with uh, with racism in the 70s and 80s. And as a result, he he thought outside the box and became, you know, a historical figure. Hmm. Well, did this take place while Mike Espy was at the Department of Agriculture? Mike Espy was not the uh, agriculture secretary at the time. Um, the, the one at the time when this all came to pass, there was a lawsuit in 1997 was when you know, this came on the scene as a class action suit. And Dan Glickman was then the the agriculture secretary. So Espy had, had preceded him. But the discrimination went back to, to 1981 and, and had gone for, for many others before that. 
Um, but as the legal process does, it moved rather slow. And mm-hmm. we can get into kind of the, the trajectory of all that. But all us to say is, you know, back to Esgott's father, he was a sharecropper. He sharecropped for nine years uh, outside Glendora, Mississippi, which is right on the border of Tallahatchie and, uh, and Lafleur counties until he was able to buy his own land. Mm-hmm. So he became a landowner. Uh, started buying up, you know, 120 acres here, 120 acres there to give to one of his sons. And they had, you know, a lot of children, um, 10 children, some some died in childbirth, but, uh, you know, a whole family of, of farmers. And so he was buying work, uh, land for his children. They were working the land together. And they like to say it was borderless. You know, the, the what whose name was on the deed didn't matter. This was a, a black farming family who was building you know this empire of of self determination in the delta, and Ed Scott lived into that and and took the torch from his father and and proceeded to expand that uh, those holdings and and do a lot of really revolutionary things in the delta. So senior uh, grew what rice and soybeans predominantly. Right. Correct, rice, soybeans, uh, cotton. Mm-hmm. Um, he farmed. He had chickens and so forth. But the big the big row crops at the time. And, and Ed Scott, it was actually, he went to, to World War II. Um, he, he entered the service in 1941 and became a quartermaster. And what quartermasters did was they drove did a lot of things, but in this case, they drove the fuel trucks to mm-hmm. General Patton's front line on, on the Western Front. And so Ed Scott joined what was predominantly African-Americans that were driving these trucks on these really treacherous routes uh, through territory that had been claimed but not really secured as Patton just marched and marched and marched uh, west, or excuse me, east on the Western Front. And so he has, Ed Scott tells this wonderful story of he had delivered uh, fuel and on one of these trips and Patton decided he wanted to go on a recon mission, needed someone to drive him around. And he looked over and and saw Mr. Scott and they got in a Jeep together and, and went on a routine recon mission. And while they were out in there, a, a Nazi sniper from a bell tower church started shooting across the bow of a Jeep, and they both bailed out into the ditch. So here is Ed Scott, you know, a farmer from Lafleur County over here in Germany in, in a ditch with old blood and guts, as wow. they called General Patton. <laughs> and uh, they radioed back for heavy artillery to, to rescue them, and, and they, you know, caught caught an arc, it caught their line on their on their uh, artillery and leveled the church. So that's one of the stories that happens in here. And, you know, it reminds me a little bit like, you know, Forrest Gump, you know, every, everything that mattered, right. Ed Scott was there observing it. Um, but it's all true. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so when Ed Scott comes back from, from service, you know, taking on discrimination was probably not that big a deal because he had been over there fighting in, in the World War, and he probably was pretty fearless. Yeah, and you know that that's a whole another journey for the African American soldier at the time that right. James Baldwin writes a lot about to to go over and risk your life for your country and to come home and and be faced with this this ugliness. And so mm-hmm. Ed Scott, you know, he he got on the the bus home after returning from overseas and people didn't like the fact that he had his uniform on. They told him to to wait in line on the bus to wait let the white people on first and Ed Scott pushed on and cut in line and said, I'm going to sit down, you know, <laughs> and uh, and he got back to, to the farm and he liked to say that he he didn't think he was going to stay in Mississippi. But when he returned from the war, he saw that his father needed help. And he said, I'm, you know, I'm going to stay here and farm with you, daddy. Mm-hmm. And, and he did that. And so that was the, the kind of the first chapter of, of Ed Scott's life. And he went on. His father was rescuing sharecroppers who were um, in inequitable systems and bringing them on to work his property. They would pay for them to leave 
these white-owned plantations and bring them on to the Scott farm and, and pay them to work. And so they really expanded their holdings. And by the time you know the middle 20th century comes around and moving into the 60s and 70s, they had a 1,000 acres of land mm-hmm. at that point in two counties. Ed Scott married into another farming family um, and, and acquired land in Mount Bayou so that, that, they, that they farmed. So you really had this kind of exceptional uh, story and, and such a, a huge footprint. And it wasn't just the family that benefited from this. It really was a cooperative situation because they did have you know, a little bit of a little bit more than others. They shared tractor equipment and helped other people, other black farmers in the area, farm their land, try to get access to loans, um, and really just did amazing things. But the book title, uh, Catfish Dream, references a particular crop. In this case, it was the catfish farming. And so how did the Scott family evolve into, did they actually have catfish ponds or did they just get into processing? So the way it worked, it was it was in response to what was happening in the Delta. So, you know, with the row crops, you know, the high time in row crops, we'll go to 1978. Ed Scott likes to say, or did like to say, he passed in 2015, that he made a million dollars in rice, had a huge rice festival. Bluesmen came and played. Um, everyone, you know, celebrated the harvest. And, and this all happened at the end of the 70s. But meanwhile, there was a lot of global market volatility in these row crops. There were various reasons for this. It was a grain embargo with Russia. There were other factors. But the Delta, as a, as a community, as a farming entity, was looking for another alternative that was more stable. And that was when people started getting into catfish. Mm-hmm. And so he also went to the government for the first time for money in 1978 and asked for uh, for money. And he got a little bit, but it set in, in motion uh, a catfish journey, if you will, that brought him up against some of the largest discriminatory, for, discriminatory forces um, in the nation. Because it, that industry was already dominated by white farmers, and they weren't about to allow an African-American farmer into that cooperative, I would assume. As he says, they gave me just enough money to get me in trouble. <laughs> and the rest is history. My guest today is Julian Rankin. Julian has a new book. I guess this is your first book, isn't it? It is. Uh, that he has just written and published uh, called Catfish Dreams. It is the biography of uh, Ed Scott Jr., who was the first African-American um, to participate in the catfish uh, farming industry, but was a, what, two or three generation Delta farmer from, from sharecropping forward. So your book uh, covers what span of time? So 1922, or 1919, rather, when Scott Sr. comes, Scott Jr. born in, in 1922, and then it goes all the way up to 2015. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a bit to, to bite off, but <sighs> Scott lived through all that. And I think we forget uh, sometimes if you live through the entire 20th century, you know, what you've seen, you know, starting with Mule and being part of these world wars, seeing civil rights happen right in front of your eyes. He marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge at Selma. You know, he fed uh, activists during the Meredith March in 66 when they came through the Delta. He was there when Fannie Lou Hamer inaugurated her Freedom Farm cooperative nearby. And so to see all this and still to to live into the 21st century with this one dream, I mean, this was, he articulated this uh, in 1989 in oral history that I've found that he said, you know, it was my dream to grow these catfish, you know, and my motto is don't stop chasing your dream. And you, right. This is my dream, and I did it, you know. And was the process, uh, were you able to interview him? I was. So uh-huh. I, I, when I met him in 2013, he was, 
you know, in his 90s and in a wheelchair and, and he was um, had some health issues, but his, his mind was still sharp. And he took me back and he gave voice and cadence to these people and to these stories. He brought the people who weren't there to speak for themselves alive and spoke for them. And so that was really an incredible thing to be able to, to go back in, in time with Ed Scott and to see him as a boy and to hear about, you know, all the, the trials, but also the triumphs. Was it difficult to convince him to allow this sort of access to his life story, or was he eager to do it because he had met you before and thought it was a story that needed to be told? I think there's always a, a trust-building process in this kind of work, but, you know, the the family was advocating for this this telling. His Ed Scott's daughter, Willina Scott-White, is the family historian, and she was looking for a story or a documentary, a movie, um, any number of things, because she knew how important this story was. So I think that really was um, a blessing to be able to have the collaboration of the family. And Ed Scott's own son, Isaac Scott, you know, there's a whole slew of, of Scots who really shared these intimate details of their life. And with Ed Scott personally, he, he seemed very pleased and, and honored to tell his story. Um, and the humor that he had, I mean, obviously there were there were times when we all shed tears, but the humor he had about what he had seen, he was really a raconteur and a, and a Delta storyteller of the highest order. can only imagine. He'd seen a lot, <laughs> or if not having seen at all. So the, did the Southern Foodways Alliance, and, and um, uh, did they play a role in connecting you to him? And was this sort of an extension of an earlier project that they wanted to see done? Or was this just an idea you had all to yourself? It was a little serendipitous. I you know, I heard about... Um, Willina Scott White's desire to tell this story, and I connected with her and, and said, I'd love to come visit you all. By the time that happened, and I began interviewing, I then let John T. Edge at the Southern Foodways Alliance know, and he was pleased to hear this. I interviewed him for the book as well, and then it went from there. So the story was separate from the Southern Foodways Alliance, and then we joined forces, as they say, to make it happen. Well, that's great. All right, my guest today is Julian Rankin. Uh, he has a brand new book out entitled Catfish Dream. It can be purchased at all the independent bookstores across the great state of Mississippi. Uh, he will be touring and promoting uh, the book and doing readings and all of the usual uh, carrying on that goes with that. We're going to take a little break, listen to some music. This tune, uh, the first tune is entitled Tallahatchie River Blues. It's by Maddie Delaney, uh, recorded in 1930. Uh, it comes from the Oxford American Southern Music CD number 13, which is all Mississippi music. Uh, and and Maddie Delaney uh, lived in the Chula area. Also, is rumored to have spent some time in Goodman. But either way, let's enjoy some Tallahatchie River Blues. It will be Tallahatchie River Blues. It will. Be. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today. I'm in the studio with Kevin Farrell in his electric socks and with Julian Rankin and his Catfish Dreams book. Welcome back, gentlemen. Thank you. So, uh, Julian, you. You were raised in Oxford. Uh, talk a little bit about your growing up, your childhood. and did, Were you born in, in the hospital in Oxford? I was not, and that's actually uh, it's a good segue. You know, I was technically born in Atlanta. Well, I was born in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the birth certificate says. And, uh, okay. but, but I don't have any memories of that. When I was one, we moved to Shaw, Mississippi, which is a little uh, blink-and-you'll-miss-it town in Bolivar County near Cleveland. So my hmm. father was at Delta State at the time. And so I, I'm actually in the process of, of thinking about this book and, and thinking about my own time. You know, 1989, 1990, I was 
in Shaw, Mississippi, across from a cotton gin, you know, playing with my cat Rupert <laughs> and uh, getting into all kinds of country trouble. And meanwhile, Ed Scott over there and a few counties over was battling the federal government. So I've th- thought about that a lot. But but I grew up in the Delta until I was about five and we moved uh, to Oxford at that time. And so my formative years um, of, of childhood were in Oxford. The memories of the Delta are those early childhood, really vibrant memories that you have when you're three and four mm-hmm. that seem almost like they didn't happen. But Oxford was where I you know, started kindergarten and, and went through fifth grade in Oxford and you know, talking about bookstores, square books up there and um, being neighbors with the Howorths and, and growing up around that atmosphere. You know, that was before they uh, the end zones at the football stadium were like they are now. You could hang right. your feet over the side. <laughs> uh, that was when, you know, John Grisham was still around and uh-huh. and all the wonderful Oxford landmarks and and culture that was there. I was really fortunate to grow up in that atmosphere. And, and so that's that's really kind of set the stage for the rest of my life, thinking about stories and Mississippi and the fact that stories aren't just told by, you know, the the heroes. They're just told by people. Mm-hmm. You know, real people write stories, and, and that was what I think set that trajectory up for me. So your dad is Tom Rankin. Tom is a, a photographer and a professor and uh, was with Delta State, then went to the University of Mississippi, and now is in North Carolina. Yes, he's at Duke. And he, what is his position at Duke? For a while, for 15 years, he ran their Center for Documentary Studies. And, and not long ago, he moved over to be able to work and, and do a little more hands-on teaching and is now running their uh, MFA in Experimental Documentary Arts. Oh, okay. And and you went to high school in, in Oxford? I did not, actually. I moved you know, I moved away. My, my father took the Duke job um, in 1998, I suppose. So when I, was, I started sixth grade in, in North Carolina. So okay. I, it was a pretty clean uh, break of half my life had been in Mississippi. And then by the time I graduated high school, half my life had been in North Carolina. And I went to a college at the University of North Carolina and then came back to Mississippi. And so now I'm back on the Mississippi side of that equation where I've, I've lived here longer uh, than anywhere else. But I did spit my, split my upbringing there. So I may have falsely said in the beginning that you were from Oxford. What do you call home? Where do you say you're from? I do say I'm from Mississippi. I think there's a, I think Jojo Herman might have said this. I heard this quote, you know, when people ask, I tell them from, I'm from Mississippi because, well, it's a lot cooler. <laughs> Sounds cool to say that. Um, but I do, I do feel like. Well, Jojo's from New York, isn't he? That's right. Anyone can claim Mississippi. I think that's the, that's the secret to it. <laughs> but growing, in, during your time in Oxford, you were around, you mentioned John Grisham, but also Larry Brown. Was Willie there then? He wasn't living and teaching there anymore. Um, but of course he he was around, mm-hmm. um, and may, and I could be wrong about that. Again, I was a young boy, yeah, but uh, my my biggest um, fondest memories in terms of that kind of cultural circuit were was Larry Brown, the the kind of dinner parties I call them that in quotations at his house out in Yakna, where mm-hmm. there would be a big bonfire and everyone would would sit around and and talk about everything under under the sky. Um, and Bill Ferris was a neighbor of ours; he lived Caddy Corner, and so. You know, Charles Reagan uh, Wilson was there and is, is my godfather. And so I got to grow up in this really um, magical place. You know, my home was, my childhood home was about 100 yards away from Faulkner's grave. And so we'd, right. we'd be playing baseball in the yard and people would drive up, pull up over on the side and say, where's where's William Faulkner's grave? And we just point down the hill. You'd say it's a long fly in right field. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. To Faulkner's grave. Um, so, so this is your first 
writing project, but you've written uh, for journals and publications. I've seen you, you've, you've done journalistic pieces and photography and you've been published and talk a little bit about that part of your life. Yeah. You know, I went to, to school as an English major and creative writing minor. I would have majored in creative writing if they would let me. But um, so I came out of that at, at the University of North Carolina wanting to, to tell stories. I think I've always thought, you know, I'll just be a fiction writer, but I wasn't real good at fiction. Mm-hmm. Never have been. <laughs> um, and, and I guess that's to say that I don't, my imagination is humbly humble as it is. Um, I can think of a few good jokes now, now and again, but it's nothing compared with the stories I hear just walking down the street in the South. You uh-huh. know, and the things that exist here that have really happened, uh, being grounded in truth, giving voice to those, that's where I really found my my passion. And so I've, you know, whether it's a podcast or videography or photography or writing, that's sort of my North Star is just telling and giving voice to Southern stories. Now, your day job is you work at the Mississippi Museum of Art as the director of the Center for Art and Public Exchange, right? That's it. So would you explain to our listeners what the Center for Art and Public Exchange does and what your job is as the director? Absolutely. So not long ago, last year, uh, the museum launched this initiative that's called the Center for Art and Public Exchange. The acronym is CAPE. And this is a, a project, initiative, an initiative funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. And the purpose of CAPE is to use visual art, interactions with artists, all kinds of projects and, and outreach to inspire new narratives in, in contemporary Mississippi and to increase understanding between people of different backgrounds. And so what really that means is, you know, it's the power of art meets the power of the people. It's creating a platform for conversation about issues that may be thorny in our history or uh, learning to look uh, at things from a different perspective, uh, empathy building, and and just thinking about how art can be a portal to seeing the world through another's eyes and how that can benefit contemporary society. So we have exhibitions, we acquire art, we're housed within the Museum of Art. Um, We fund residencies, um, both from national artists and in Mississippi, uh, through Mississippi artists. And so we do a lot of things that are really just about uh, igniting conversation and, uh, and having some kind of formative experiences and really leveling the playing field about whose voice is being heard. Hmm. But before that job, you were also at the museum uh, working in communications and yeah. public relations. I've been in uh, in Mississippi eight years or so, and I've worked at the museum all that time. And so public relations and started in that and worked my way up for um, – a while, I was the marketing director, director of marketing and communications for the three years prior to, to taking over this role managing CAPE. Was this your was this your first uh, job at the Mississippi uh, Museum of Art out of college, or did you work in North Carolina or somewhere else before you came back to Mississippi? I did a few a uh, few weeks at a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I think, a few weeks. <laughs> I think I can understand that. Yeah, running food at a, a Cajun restaurant in North Carolina, which you know they had to fly crawfish up. We don't know how good we got it down here, <laughs> where you could get it, but it was a delicacy up there. Uh, it's kind of a Creole. Uh, it was called Papa Mojo's Roadhouse. So okay. that was a, that was a good time. And you were a food runner. I was. I wasn't even serving and taking orders. Um, so that, that was my first time working in a restaurant, but I think that's a good thing for people to do. But not long after that, I, I did one other stint. Uh, I did an internship um, in Washington, D.C. with Senator Thad Cochran the summer of 2010. And so July, excuse me, uh, January to June of, of 2010. And so after that, um, it just kind of happened that it concluded my time up there, and I decided after reconnecting with those roots and and Mississippi 
on that level that I wanted to come down here. And so I, I drove down to Mississippi and uh, had a, had to get a new car, and I got my grandmother's old Buick. That was part of the trip. And then I just did interviews around town. I think I did one with you at the time, just seeing what might be available and, and seeing how things worked. And in Mississippi fashion, things just kind of happened. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get a, a, a foot in the door at the Mississippi Museum of Art, and that was, again, 2010 in the summertime, and that was that was history. You still got your grandmother's Buick? I do not. I've, I've uh, up, it, it died on me a little bit. Um, <laughs> she died, and then it died, and that's 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 the story. But yeah. it was it served me well. I did a lot of a lot of trips to the Delta and, and Oxford and around the state, um, and it adds to the story when you have a good ride. Indeed, it does. Uh, so, are your grandparents uh, all Mississippians or not? They're not. My my mother's side of the family, w- which the Buick came from, they're Crystal Springs folks. So. Hmm. The tomato capital of the world, yeah. and and that's where we grew up visiting. My father's family is from Louisville, Kentucky, so they're horse breeders and Kentucky Derby people, oh. and uh, so that's like the other side, a different side of the South. And uh, and he he claimed Mississippi, of course, when he he worked and made his kind of career doing folklore and uh, and teaching here. Um, but my mother's family was was always just south of Jackson. And we didn't mention, or I didn't mention, that your dad Tom. Uh, used to work at the Mississippi Arts Commission. That's right. He he, was, I don't remember what his title was. I'm well, I think he was the folk and traditional arts director, what Maria is today. That would make sense. Yeah. He <laughs> and John Horn had that job for a while. Senator John Horn had That's that what same I job. I was wondering, you know, if that uh, if you think you could handle them if they were your employees. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> so my guest today uh, is my friend Julian Rankin, and Julian has just uh, written a biography, a book about uh, Ed Scott Jr., uh, who is a farmer from the Mississippi Delta. Uh, and uh, he is the first uh, African-American farmer uh, to, first catfish farmer to uh, to break up that uh, particular log jam and to, to not only raise row crops, but to get into the catfish business. So was Ed Scott successful as a catfish farmer? I mean, I think everything's relative. I think the thing to keep in mind that I try to tell people about this story is, you know, the thing that it teaches us, I think, in contemporary society is Ed Scott doesn't teach us about farming cotton or rice or catfish, though he did those jobs very well. You know, his story really is about the promise or the broken promise, you know, of the American dream. It's, you know, what America should be, you know, what it can be. Um, and, And so I think it speaks to, a truly free market, if you will, you know, what, what things, the opportunities, that's all he ever wanted was an equal opportunity. And so that when, where we stopped talking earlier was when everyone got into catfish and he wanted to do this. And he went to the government and asked for money and they said, you don't have any catfish ponds. So he got a little bit of money from them to keep row cropping and he decided to, to dig his own ponds. So over the course of 1980 and 81, he and his family dug up 160 acres of fields and made them grave basin deep catfish ponds. Mm-hmm. And then he went back to him and said, I got my catfish ponds. And that's when they gave him you know, enough money, as he says, just to get him in trouble. And even though it wasn't enough, it was about a third of what you would need to start, to start a catfish farm. He filled it. He, he, you know, he, he got the hydro going. He got the water in place. He got hatchlings. He hatched his first crop. And, uh, and then he proceeded to find a place to process them. And this is where he never intended to be a processor. Right. And that was where his historic thing. It wasn't just catfish farming. There, there probably were other African-American catfish farmers, but there weren't African-American catfish farmers who had vert- vertically integrated their business. And so when he went to a local white-owned processor, 
you know, around 1981 to, to see if they process his fish, you had to have stock in the plant. And as his lawyer told him, who had inquired about stock, he said, Mr. Scott, you know, you know, I speak straight with you. I couldn't get you no stock on the count of the color of your skin. Hmm. And so Ed Scott said, well, you know, that's not going to stop me. So he set up a tour of that plant and he's walking around the plant with the tour guide. And the tour guide's like, so Mr. Scott, you, uh, you got catfish? He's like, yeah. He's like, you got any stock in the plant? Ed Scott's like, nope. He's like, you got anything line, lined up with any live haulers who will take your fish? He's like, nope. He's like, well, what the hell are you going to do with your fish then? Eat them? And Ed Scott says, yeah, something like that. I'm down here seeing what you're doing. I can't do myself. <laughs> and so he went home, and, and over the course of the next months, he turned an old tractor shed into a catfish processing plant. And in 1983, in February, he opened what was the, the first ever African-American-owned catfish processing plant in the nation, and he had his fish at that time. Um, but just to answer your question, it, it didn't last because the government then came for the fish themselves. They uh, in 1983 he'd been getting government money through USDA the the, the agency program was called the Farmers Home Administration mm-hmm. and they decided that he was a risky venture and this was where the the kind of discrimination was really insidious because you know having debt in farming is not an unusual thing he had a couple thousand dollars in debt I'm sure like every farmer does it's as normal as wearing boots out into the field right. But they said he's a risky venture, so they, they'd foreclosed on roughly 1,000 acres, and they had claimed to everything except for the ponds he had dug with his own money, the processing plant, but they even took the fish, which he'd fed with some of his government money. So he was left with a processing plant and a problem, but, uh, but he had a solution, and he kept going. Well, we'll talk about his solution when we come back. We're going to take another break, listen to a little bit of music. This tune uh, is entitled Storm Through Mississippi. Uh, in 1951, this is Henry Green. This is a, this is a story about a tornado uh, up in Tupelo. So this is Storm Through Mississippi. Welcome back to the third and final segment of the, this edition of the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host. My guest today is Julian Rankin. Welcome back, Julian. Thank you. Julian has just uh, published, written and published and released uh, a book entitled Catfish Dream. And it is the, a biography of African-American farmer Ed Scott Jr., born in 1922 and passed in 2015 from uh, the Mississippi Delta. And uh, you recently launched the book. You had an event uh, both at Lemuria and Square Books. The Lemuria is actually uh, August 9th, so mm-hmm. that one uh, is coming up. But we had a, a wonderful celebration. We decided to, to launch the book in Oxford, Mississippi at Square Books, you know, honoring a little bit of my childhood, I suppose, but also just the the wonderful um, the legacy that is Square Books and Southern Foodways Alliance was up there, so that was our launch event. And the family, the Scott family, they they were along for the ride, and they they've been coming uh, to as many events as possible and and really giving their voice. As I alluded to earlier, the collaboration between myself and the family has been what's made the book. I mean, I, I thank them um, for including me at the very beginning, but also through all these rewrites and. And uh, and figuring out, you know, what is this the story? Where do I? Everyone's got a different story. Let's right. let's let's see what we got here. And they opened up their archives to me, and so that was really beautiful. But uh, we've we've had a bunch of uh, some nice events, and we got some ahead. And the book festival's coming up. We're going to be a part of that. And um, for anybody out there who who wants to who can't remember everything I've said so far, there's a website www.catfishdream.com where there's a timeline of Ed Scott's life. There's all the events and everything else and an archive of, of resources. So I would just throw that in there too. So the, um, 
the Lemuria signing is still coming up. It's August 9, did you say? Correct. And then the book festival, uh, for those of you who don't know, is August 18. Now, are you on a panel? Are you speaking uh, involved in the book festival beyond just having the book there? I'll be on the Delta panel, uh-huh. and I'll be moderating um, the panel about the art books, which I'm, I'm sure there's a fancier title than the panel about the art books, but I'll be <laughs> moderating that one and, and speaking on it through the lens of this book on the Delta panel. So it'll be a wonderful opportunity to to do that and, and pay homage to the story on that uh, on that stage. So for those of our listeners who've not yet had the, the privilege to attend our Mississippi Book Festival, I believe is in our third third year this this time, takes place at the Capitol uh, in the downtown Jackson. Uh, writers, uh, publishers uh, from all over uh, are coming August 18. Uh, it's certainly a highlight of, of the summer uh, in downtown Jackson. And uh, so if you're interested in Julian's book or uh, Jasmine Ward and her work and thousands of other writers who are coming and, and other books, independent book, book publishers, uh, big-time book publishers, it's a, quite an event. So please join us. Uh, the Mississippi Arts Commission is involved, and we really enjoy it. I'm going to be moderating some panel, and I have no idea what panel that is, but <laughs> I'll be, be glad to be involved. Uh, so um, let's pick up where we were on a bit of the story, just not to tell it all, because we want people to go out and buy the book, of course. Um, but uh, you had taken us to the place where the federal government came and seized Ed Scott's fish, the very fish that they had financed uh, because he was a risky investment for the federal government who had prior to that supported him in every way possible. What a interesting twist. That's right. And the federal government, you know, they, they were pouring billions of dollars into heartland agriculture at this time to keep it alive. And so this was this is an important, you know, agriculture is important to America and they wanted to, to help farmers out. They would, you know, uh, forgive loans of hundreds of thousands of dollars if if they if they liked you. Um, but they, they didn't like Ed Scott. And, and it was because he was, as they said, a big black farmer um, who was out of his depth. And um, and so Ed Scott, for just a few months, you know, from after he, he, he built his catfish processing plant and opened it in 1983, within months of that, his the foreclosures came. Um, the federal government didn't want to lend him any more money and the local banks who the, the loans had been going through had to come and take the land. They were pretty much uh, forced to do so. Um, but Ed Scott, it didn't stop him. And he became just a processor and a fry master of his own. And at this time, he was employing dozens of African-American workers um, white workers as well, but people in his plant. And the catfish processing plant is not a, a, a luxurious position. It's not a glorious no, I mean, you're, place to work. You're chopping heads and sucking guts, and mm. there's viscera all over the floor. Um, but the people who worked there, he had a, a core of women who called themselves the, the Dependables. And I love the Dependables because they... You know, when I spoke to them, it's like they just picked up their conversation from back in the 80s. You know, <laughs> they were talking over each other and, and talking about how they could do everything the men could do and more. And they could. I mean, there was one character, uh, Essie Watson. She went into labor at, at the skinning table. Her, her water broke mid fish. Wow. And she took herself to the hospital and then, you know, had her had her son. And before long, she was back back working. But they, they loved that job because Ed Scott was able to really change the paradigm of what the management of a plant was in the Delta. You know, it wasn't uh, discouraging people from unionizing. It wasn't mm-hmm. the reports of sexual assault and all the rest of carpal tunnel. That was a huge issue. Right. Um, all these OSHA violations. Ed Scott trusted his workers 
um, and and gave them the, the pride and, and the dignity of, of working for something that they believed in. And Ed Scott's wife, Edna Scott, was also a part of this story. So in the 80s, you know, as they're uh, farming, uh, excuse me, as they're still, still uh, processing catfish and, and trying to kind of open up markets all over the country because the catfish boom is on, Edna Scott builds a, a kitchen and cafeteria as an annex to the house. And so she's feeding the plant workers every day and farmers from all around come and eat at her place. So the, the catfish that Ed Scott's processing, you know, when it, when it was, when they were still in the pond, it went from pond to plate. Um, even after that, Edna used things from her garden patch and, and cooked more fish um, and fed people in, in that Rural, rural region of the Delta. So um, it really was a family affair, and it, I think it celebrated, you know, what it, what food can mean in terms of, again, the American dream, or at least the promise of owning something and having access to to the markets. Um, so Ed, Ed Scott was going, you know, up to Cincinnati to Kroger headquarters. His son Isaac has a wonderful story about driving up there in a retrofitted bread truck that they used to, to carry their fish and wowing people in a Cincinnati Kroger with a spider <laughs> skimmer and a fry daddy at the end of the cereal <laughs> aisle. You know, people who never had had catfish before and then they right. wanted to come back for more. Um, so he did a, a, everything he could, everything he possibly could to make this work. Um, it was just a matter of time before... Um, before the industry and, and the government who still had a resentment against Scott was actually starting to constrict the supply lines because Ed was trying to buy fish, cash from other processors. But all these people were in a enwebbed, enmeshed in this federal program. And so that was a really unfortunate thing. And, and it's important to say that the way the USDA worked at the time was the people who had the final say were these local supervisors. So these were local people who represented the federal government uh-huh. that were making these decisions. And there was really no oversight um, and as I alluded to earlier, this all came to a head um, in the late 90s when USDA realized that something was wrong. All these civil rights complaints had been piling up. They they hadn't been answered since the Reagan administration, they found. You know, they'd mm. found thousands and thousands of complaints from farmers all over the country about this kind of treatment, and nothing had been done. Wow. So Ed pushed on, but but in the end, um, did he get out of processing and, and catfish farming? And revert back to row crop? Ed Scott, they closed their plant around 1990, and, you know, Ed Scott didn't actually farm again. Never you know, did. He, mm-hmm. he cooked fish, and he uh, was celebrated at the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium in, in the early uh, 2000s. He was at 1998. He was actually, uh, President Clinton had an initiative on race, and so they had a big conversation at Ole Miss, and Ed Scott was the chairperson of the labor panel. So he spoke about this on those in those kind of forums. And, uh, and and he was still trying to get his land back, and then he joined the class action suit um, against the government, and that had its own long and kind of tortured history of, of stretching out for him. The the Pigford v. Glickman suit, which was the name of it, um, it was twenty two thousand black farmers through their uh, cases in there uh, alleging discrimination. Um, but even though it was settled in nineteen ninety nine, it took Ed Scott another decade to get. His, his justice because mm-hmm. of uh, he had to argue his his claim in court again because it was such a large claim. He did have such a large operation. So, you know, there, there's no real spoiling this book because it's history. I think the the, the wonderful thing about it, um, there is there is more I'm not saying, but the wonderful thing about a story like this is it should be told in as many ways as possible. But to see and hear Ed Scott tell it, which is what the book does, 
um, is really when it comes to life. Hmm. And his perseverance is what stands uh, the test of time. And, and so I think that's why he's a man that should be remembered. And and as you said earlier, you were able to actually meet and interview Ed himself and his family. And so it, was it a, a, a course of, of many oral histories or just a few sessions with him and then digging back through the family history? I probably spoke with him for about six hours total, which isn't that long of, of a time. Um, but then I expanded it to his daughters and sons, uh, grandsons, the plant workers, people mm-hmm. he had farmed with, his lawyer. And so I kept expanding that. And then meanwhile, I was digging into the history of uh, the court case that they had the archives for, all kinds of documents. And then after I had all that, which you know my primary source material was, were the oral histories, then I went back and read other things and, and kind of tried to map out with more specificity you know, what What was the Western Front like with Patton? Or right. what, what day did J- James Meredith get shot in DeSoto County before he came down to the Delta, before the people, uh, other civil rights workers joined him and, and had that march that Ed Scott fed them on? And so that was really what was a, the wonderful journey about it. And again, why this story, I think, opens up so many possibilities for conversation is that to live at a time that Ed Scott did and many other people have is to be in proximity to these you know, cataclysmic and uh, societal events that really changed the course of American history, and he participated in it. Mm-hmm. So, for you, uh, w- what was the timeline like uh, uh, for for beginning getting the contract, starting the work, and how long did it did the book take to to come to fruition? So, like I said, I did a lot of my interview in over 2013 and 2014, and began writing it. It was since it was my first book, I didn't know where to start. You know. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote way more than uh, made it in. I mean, this is a relatively small, short, short book. It's concise, but I'd written 300,000 word versions that were 500 pages that were not <laughs> concise at all. So trying to figure out what, what are the right things to tell and, and how to tell it. It took a long time because it was, you know, the first uh, foray into this. But again, I like to say I, I learned to, to write a book by writing this book, and I learned how to write it by listening to Ed Scott. You know, it was mm-hmm. like farming, you know, you've up, up and down the rows bit by bit. And when you hit a roadblock, you just figure out what the, what's the proverbial tractor shed that I can turn into a catfish <laughs> processing plant. Did you ever eat any of Ed's catfish? No, because uh, by, by, not his catfish, but I did eat catfish that was uh, breaded in Edna Scott's signature meal mix. And that was the other, that was one of their secrets that they had, that oh. fry anything in that. So I, I shared catfish dinners with the family, and uh, that's about as close as I could get. Do they... Does the family still tell us about the family enterprise now? Do they do they market this uh, this, this catfish? Uh, so they're done with catfish. But, they're done. Yeah, but what happened with with the court case that Ed Scott did get a settlement, mm-hmm. and um, his his daughter Walena White. So they didn't have the land at that point. I mean, right. the land was in government inventory. The government had bought it up, and and uh, Walena White after they'd got their land, she was looking in, in the paper and saw that. Lo and behold, they're in the public land auctions. These tracts of land, they look an awful lot like my dad's. And so she uh, was able to kind of catch it before it went to land auction. The way this works is you, previous owner has three years to buy it back or it's gone. And so they took the, the settlement money that they had, and Ed Scott was still alive at this point, and they went and bought back oh, all land the back. land. And so now um, Isaac Scott, Ed's son, Walena Scott-White, his daughter, 
are farming again, and they're farming row crops. So, you know, rice and soybeans mostly, but they're back on the tractor, um, and, and Melina White, uh, Scott White, wants to have a museum to honor these stories. So they've continued, and the book fits into to the work they're doing. So it's full circle for the family. And for Julian Rankin, it's the launch of a new book called Catfish Dreams. And, uh, again, give us the website where people can check it out. Catfishdream.com. And if you're looking for Julian during the daytime, you can find him down at the Mississippi Museum of Art. Uh, running the Center for the Art and Public Exchange. Thanks so much, Julian, for coming in and talking about your new book. Good luck on that. You can find it again at all the locally independent bookstores across Mississippi. Uh, Again, the title is Catfish Dreams. The author and our guest today is Julian Rankin. Thanks so much. We will see you next Sunday right here on the Mississippi Arts Hour.